Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning at the Mass and for your presence always, for all the many ways in which you are beside all of us, always, even if we don't see you. Um, a special um, expression of gratitude for Father's words. It's so important to remind us that Death is always here. You and our church ask us, memento mori, to remember death. Um, we can't escape it. We should make our peace with it, however hard it is. Help all of us to do that, please. Um, I ask a special blessing on Iris. Um, receive her into your kingdom. Wash away her sins. Um, let her know the joy of being with you, and let all those who love her take comfort, be glad. Um, pray for her, um, that her sins will pass, and that our prayers will help send her to you. Watch over Denise, comfort her, um, continue to strengthen her, as it seems she has been. Um, in whatever pain she suffers, help her to know that in some way it's meant to take her deeper to you, to grow in your love. Help her to bring that love to all that happens to her and help it, let it be shared between her and all those who love her. Ask for a blessing on Christopher and Kayla. Um, thank you for the great grace given to them in these last few days. Um, help them through this cross that they're being asked to bear. Um, Increasing them a spirit of humility, help them to be open to seeing their faults and to grow in the love that they promised each other when they <coughs> came together. Help them to return to that love, to pick it up and grow in it. Um, these are our prayers. We offer them in your name, Christ our Lord. Sorry, I'm disrupting. The you class. are. Uh oh, got the got the dunce cap for me. <laughs> I'm going to have to invest in more of them, obviously. <laughs> Um, this is just for us to look at, not to take I want everybody to focus here. Behave, all of you. Behave, all of you. You notice who I'm looking at? She's not even, she's ignoring me. Because um, we have to get out of here. There's a sergeant of arms in this class right now, and I've got to get out of here before 11. Oh, my. <laughs> Actually, we're, we were good last week, yes, I think. Yes, yes, yes. I'd like to finish Burt Norton and I, I want to I want to make just a couple of comments today 
And then what I'd like to do next week, I think, um, is pick out some passages from the whole thing. It's too long to read at the beginning of the class, but what I'd like to do is pick out some passages from each one of the sections and read through it and see if we just can't look at it as a whole because we were breaking it up. And you know my feelings about breaking things up, that we've got to learn to see things as whole. So I'll finish it this morning. I just have a few comments to make. And then next week, I'll go over the whole. And, um, and then the following week, we'll do um, um, East Coker. That's the next quartet. Um, I think what I'll do is make my comment now and let the poem settle on you, so I'm not going to make a comment afterwards. Remember, this is really important, remember that the, the central intuition of all the quartets, all four of them, is this still point, what Elliot calls this still point, this intersection between the timeless eternity and time. And we know, I remember the opening lines, remember the time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. The only way in which anything in time can be redeemed is if something outside of time enters it and becomes one with it. <laughs> we, all, we all know what that is. That's Christ. So the only, the only way in which anything happening in time, certainly involving us as humans, can be redeemed is by something coming into time. So this still point is an image of, of the incarnation of Christ. And part of the burden of what he's doing in all of these quartets is making us aware of that still point everywhere around us, even if we don't see it. Um, and one of the, I don't think I've stressed this as much as I should, but one of the things that's important to see is this. He's a modern poet. Spe poets, remember, have always been spokesmen for their time. They seem to speak to things that are needful in that time that most of us don't see. Um, so he's speaking to an audience that's largely non-Christian. So you can understand. I mean, if he started writing poetry in Christian terms, who would listen to him? As a matter of fact, you know that the greater part of the intellectuals of the world turned against Eliot once they saw what he was doing. So it's important to always remember. That's, that's why art is so important, because we have to find a way of getting to the deepest things in a way that speaks to each age. That's why artists are so important. One of, one of the great heartaches for me is what's not happened in music and painting for our liturgy. It just so saddens me. I mean, we should not be in the past. Somehow we have to find an art and a music that, can, that shows grace is moving forward. If you look at the Eastern Orthodox world, their art continues to stay in the past. It doesn't move forward. The Catholic Church has been remarkable in that sense because there are always, Flannery O'Connor is Catholic. Uh, Catherine Ann Porter is Catholic. Um, to, 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 to give a voice to something that's particularly needful, that's in the idiom of that age, that speaks to that age. So, Eliot's speaking to an audience that he knows is largely 
not religious. Um, and he can't ignore that. So we know that the central intuition of the four quartets is the still point. It's the intersection between the timeless and time. And the burden of his poem is, is to speak to that, to find it in his poetry. Um, I, I don't want to go over the whole poem now, I'll do it next week, but, but when I read through it, excuse me, when I read through it, keep this in mind. Part of the focus of this last section, section five, is words and what words do, okay? Now, so many of the images that he gives, and let me name them, the vase, the vase, the violin, the dance, the stairs, the wheel, Every one of those images implies a still, a still point. Okay, and just stop and think about this for a second. The wheel is the central one, the, the, the still point of the turning world. Okay, if those of you who were with, with me when we did Dante, remember when Dante got to the top of the, the edge of the universe, the Imperium, and looked back, there were two perspectives that he, um, he framed, he rendered. One of them was material. When he was at the back of the universe looking at the center of the universe, um, the earth was standing still. It's the place of death. Things die and the rest of the planets were revolving around it. The farther the way they got from the um, center, the faster they went until they came to the prima mobile. It was the prima mobile that imparted motion to all the others. The prima mobile is like the crystalline sphere it's transparent, invisible. It's, it's, a, it's an image of the order that God imparts to his world from outside of it or at the edge of it. When he was looking into Beatrice's eyes, and because her eyes were always on God, and he looked at the universe from a more spiritual, intellected point of view, what he saw at the center was a point moving so fast that it stood still. That point was God. So what we learn from that image is God is everywhere imparting him stuff from either image, but he was at the center of it, that still point, that Aristotle's unmoved mover. Every motion implies an earlier motion, but it has to go back to an unmoved mover or it will go on infinitely and not explain itself. That's no explanation at all. So Aristotle's notion of an unmoved mover was at the beginning of this. Um, St. Thomas picks that up in amazing ways in his proof of God. But. So that's the importance of that image. Now stop and think about this. If you look at a wheel, all, almost all physicists, I think, say, if you look at a wheel, the, the farther away you get from the center, the faster the wheel goes. So as you move the edge out, it goes faster and faster. Conversely, if you move from the edge inward, it gets slower and slower. You can see that because there's less movement than there is you know, out here. If you get to the center of the wheel, you get to a point that's not moving at all. It's motionless. It's still. Okay? Physicists would admit that. Um, so at the center of a wheel that's turning, that gets us from before, after. You know, we've been talking about these forever, Nelly, before, after. A wheel gets us from here to here, from, towards, before, after. At the center of this is this still point. He says, it's not the music of the violin, and he'll give you the reason, and, but think about the other things. He gives, he gives the image of the vase and its stillness, because on a Chinese vase, you have images of vines and leaves and dragons. 
that are all full of energy and moving. All of that life is captured in this stillness. And I love the image of the jar because if you think about a jar spinning, even the jar itself implies a still point around which its curves spin that give it its order. He uses the image of the dance. And re remember this, every jump, every spin, every turn, every gesture in a dance implies an equipoise, a point of stillness, balance. Because if it doesn't, it collapses. So even though we never see it, it's there. The reason we're so amazed to watch a great dancer do something is because they manage to do it without losing their balance, a long jump where they hold it. Every one of those motions implies stillness, equipoise. Same with a stare, right? A stare facilitates movement to get from here to there. But it itself is fixed. If it weren't, we wouldn't get anywhere. So what he's showing is, it's almost like a scientist proving, you know, from a great variety of perspectives, the existence of this fixed point. And we also know that it's in words. You've been hearing me talk, every poem, every work, Sound of the Fury, the Iliad, Dante, every poem is a form at the center of a poem that has an action, remember, every plot imitates an action, at the center of that action is an intuition, a single word unifying the whole thing. Can we get to that word? I mean, you know how seriously I take that. I hate it when people misread literature. I mean, what modern critics do with literature really bothers me. Can we get to that central intuition, the light that informs the whole thing, the love? So in every one of these things, even though they're not explicit, I mean, Eliot's not spelling things out, what's at the heart of all of this is this still point at the turning world, okay? So let me read the, um, the fifth section, and I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna comment more than what I've just said, okay? And then we'll start, um, we'll look at the stories. Um, before I start, I want you to go back to page two at, at the beginning of the second section because it introduces that still point image. The bottom of page two. <coughs> at the still point of the turning world, and notice that it's a statement, it's an image, there's no predication. Nothing said about it, it's, it's this thing. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long for that is to place it in time. Just hold on to that. You should go back and read the whole thing, but what he says after that is particularly important. But now let's go to section five. Remember, this is after section four in which he describes all of these things, what happens to them when the light goes out. Um, and he ends it saying, um, Chill fingers of you be curled down on us 
after the kingfisher's wing is answered light to light and is silent, the light is still at the still point of the turning world. So even when the darkness comes, there's, that still point never goes out. It's always there. Section five. Words move, music moves only in time. But that which is only living can only die. Words after speech reach into the silence. Only by the form, pattern, can words or music reach the stillness as a Chinese jar still moves perpetually in its stillness. Not the stillness of the violin while the note lasts, not that only, but the coexistence, or say that the end precedes the beginning and the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end. And all is always now. Words strain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden, under the tension, slip, slide, perish. Decay with imprecision will not stay in place, will not stay still. Shrieking voices, scolding, mocking, or merely chattering always assail them. The word in the desert is most attacked by voices of temptation, the crying shadow in the funeral dance, the loud lament of the disconsolate chimera. The detail of the pattern is movement, and in the figure of the ten stairs, as in the figure of the ten stairs. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement, timeless and undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being. Sudden in a shaft of sunlight, even while the dust moves, there rises the hidden laughter of children in the foliage. Quick now, here, now, always. Ridiculous the way sad time stretching before and after. Um, <clears throat> remember, there's no desire in God. God is love. There's nothing incomplete in him. Whatever he offers is love. It's complete. We're in desire. Desire in itself is not de desired. Desire itself implies an end. We want something. Remember, the end of desire is rest, completion. We want, we want to love, to reach our end. And in that end is rest and completion. It would be with God, with hopefully with each other. And so keep that in mind because in, in some point, in, in, some, in some ways, that last section is a reflection of what he's been talking about in the preceding section, except in terms of desire and love. Because remember, love, remember the, the, um, what he was saying in the, in the section I just read, the first section, that was there in the beginning and the end, before the beginning and the end. That's the Alpha and the Omega. Who is that? That's God. He's always there. So the end, the, the still point, is always there before the beginning, whatever we begin here, and he'll be there after whatever we do ends here. So it's the Alpha and the Omega that was there, the beginning and the end, is always there, that still point. Um, we're in a world of motion, moving from here to there, desiring. What we desire, finally, is to be whole <coughs> in love, to be one with God. 
and notice, um, I, I would ask you all to read this this week before we I really want you to do this. I'm asking you all of you to take a few minutes and read this. It doesn't take much time, but read it. And if you can read it to somebody else, read it out loud because it has to be heard. Notice in this last section, the, the play on the word still. The stillness, as in a Chinese jar, still moves. You can find still in there, in a, um, and, and, it's, and it's very often an adjective or an ad adverb. He's using it in different ways. Um, 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 the words, decay with imprecision, will not stay in place, will not stay still. Um, anyway, read this over and next week what I'll, I'll try to um, pull the whole thing together just very briefly and get ready to start East Coker, okay? <laughs> Last week, I um, <laughs> I went out on a catechetical limb. I don't know how else to describe it. You know, I, th I think I did it with you guys. I um, I don't think I did it with the other group, but I did it with you guys. I think. I raised this question, um, if we don't see our sins very well, how can we change them? That one of the reasons for doing this work is that I believe that it has something to show us, that there's a great value in learning to see ourselves as we are. And you know that I've said again and again, if we don't learn to, s to identify with every one of the characters, maybe even most especially the ones we don't like, then we're missing an opportunity. Um, and I have the, the center of the church behind me. I'm not, I'm not saying anything I don't think you guys already don't know. Remember Dante. Dante wanted to climb that mountain. It begins with, he saw the sun, the immortality of the soul, he wants to get to it, he wants to go to God, he starts to climb the mountain, and those beasts beat him back. And it's only then Mary gets Luc Lucia, she gets Beatrice, Beatrice gets Virgil, and Virgil, because Dante loves them all, and he particularly loved Virgil as a poet. Virgil went to him and said, you can't go up until you go down. You have to learn to see your sins. And so the whole first of the Commedia, the first third of the Commedia, is an exposition, a revelation of sins, and they're horrible. And for those of you who are with me, I said, if, if we don't learn to see ourselves at every one of those steps, we're reading the wrong, we're not reading. I mean, whatever we're doing with our eyes, we're not. So um, it was a real concern for me last week to raise this with you, that I, I, I don't want to be here just teaching literature. I just don't. That, um, that there's a great gift being given to us and I would be sorry to see it wasted, that, um, that these poets are doing extraordinary things and that's why I'm calling them prophetic, that they show us. Once we see our sin, I mean, if we have the humility to read well, it means we have a work to do, obviously, because it means we have a lot of things to change, I mean, to pick up our burden. This is Christ. Pick up your cross, pick up each other's cross, bear them. 
you all know from what we did earlier in, the, in Plato's cave that that's exactly the burden of Plato's cave. Everybody's caught in the cave. So long as nobody questions what they're doing, so long as they continue to believe that they're right in everything, they can't get out. It's only the people that begin to question who shake loose of their beliefs that they're always right who get out. And the, the Socratic method, the way it's presented to us, has two aspects to it that are really important. Did you all get the sheet I gave you, the call to evangelize? You did, Tom. Do you all have it? I should. Do you have one, Tom? Do you? Yeah, here. I got it here. Yeah, can you just send that back? One more? You don't have to. This is, these are my own notes. They're, they're not. I just put them away. I just, they're mine, but I'm giving them to you if, if you think they might be useful. There were two aspects to the Socratic method. One of them was what's called an elenchus. It's, it's a form of questioning um, that should bring a person to a point of raising questions about whether he, what he sees is really the way things are. Um, and it comes from the, the Greek word elenchaian, which means to put to shame that if we begin to question ourselves properly, there should be some sense of regret that things aren't always the way that I think they are. Remember in the, in the, in the Aristotelian notion of an action, a tragic action, every action of, of, of the very best works of art have a turning point. Remember the peripatia, the turn. The church calls that a metanoia, a turn. That point always carries with it a recognition. We go through life, we think we see everything the way, the way that we see things is right. And then we realize there's so much more that we didn't see. And, and that, that's a point of recognition. I, th I think about this a lot the more I've aged. Um, I mean, I've in understood it intellectually for all of my life because it's been a part of my teaching. But imagine it this way, however smart we think we are, however much we think we see, imagine that in God's terms. How much infinitely beyond us. So when we stoop, Father, I love Father's homily. Those of you who were there this morning, I mean, he, he put to shame all of our frets, frettings about death. If, if, if God sees everything, he knows, he knows the deepest things in our hearts in ways we don't even. And if there's any help to be given anywhere, it's from him. I mean, he sees so much more than we will ever see. So the the first aspect of this movement out of the cave is called Elenchus. It's, it's a questioning about whether what we see is that way at all or not. The second is called an aporia. It's to, it's, it's to be moved to a point of perplexity or confusion because of the questioning. And if, you, if you've done the, any of the Socratic dialogues, you know that Socrates will always question somebody who thinks he has the answer to everything. And Socrates, that's the whole thing. That's, what, that's the great contribution of Plato. Socrates questioned everybody um, who thought they had answers. Justice, honor, right, virtue, you name it. And his questions would bring these people to a point of frustration 
because eventually they'd see that they didn't really know what they th claim they did. So they tend to be very self-righteous people. They've got the answers. And they're reduced to a humiliation. What was the final effect of that? They killed him. Hmm? They killed Socrates. Yeah, they did. They killed, because they resented fa Father's homily. For those of you who aren't, he said, um, we go around, we're cowards. We go around wanting to be nice to people. Um, and he said, um, because we want to be liked. He says, you're not really liked anyway, so give them, at least give them the reason for not liking you. Speak up. Speak up. Go out, tackle. You know, he says, stop hiding. Stop giving yourself excuses. Do the harder thing. <clears throat> so um, those two aspects are central to getting out of the cave. Elentus aporia. Questioning and confusion. Perplexity. Wondering. And I, I, I know we've all been there. And maybe, I mean... It's hard for me to believe that we don't, it seems to me we should carry that perplexity and confusion, wonder, to the end of our life. My own suspicion is if we do that the way we should, it, we should make a peace with it, that it should become more a part of our life and not such a disturbance. Because you know, I'm assuming, maybe I'm speaking too much for myself. When this happens to us earlier in our life when we are younger and more arrogant, <laughs> and more arrogant than we are, it's shocking, it's troubling. I mean, it really knocks us off our feet. What I'm saying is if, I think as we grow older, if it becomes more a part of it, we carry it with some peace. We know that wonder, confusion, mystery is more a part of our lives. So it's not as overwhelming or shocking, or hopefully it shouldn't be, but. Um, <coughs> so one of, the, one of the concerns that I've been raising all along is do we read well, do, do we, are we open to what's there? Do we really listen? Or do we argue? Do we put them away because we're looking for our own ideas? You know how, because I've been doing it all along. We've been talking about characters in books and how poorly they read, how they just don't see. I mean, the, one of the most <coughs> recent examples to me that was so touching was the way in which Lester so badly misread Benji. Or, or the parents. Remember when Benji went outside and said, I just, I just wanted to say, I just, and they castrate him. You know, that how often we misread um, because we carry certain assumptions within ourselves and we see the world through them instead of being open to what's there. Because to be open to what's there means we don't always have the answers. Um, and we have to be open to mystery, to, to something going on that we don't always understand. Bob, do you think literature by its very nature is Socratic? Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, let me hold on. Okay. You answer it. How would you answer it? Well, being in this class, I found out yes. Yeah. I, mean, I think so. Yeah. If you see the characters, yeah. they, they raise issues yeah. that you would. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it challenges your worldview. Yeah. To me, it gets, yes, my, my answer to your question would have been yes, I, and I don't think it's always consciously in a Socratic or Platonic spirit, but it seems to me really great writers are great by virtue of their willingness to look at difficult things and present a story in a way that forces us to question and ask. And so in, in one sense, um, absolutely, the really great writers the reason I'm, 
a little bit hesitant. I just want to. So my answer to yours is yes, categorically. But um, the very nature of the Platonic program, the the enterprise, um, at the center of it is irony. That people think they have the answers when in fact they don't, and the dialogue makes that clear to us. Um, it seems to me writers, most great writers, deal in a fundamental way with ironies, always. They make us aware. I don't think we've read a story where there hasn't been an irony at the center of it, the elite, every one of them. But there's also, I believe, there's also a point at which irony itself is insufficient. Um, there are some ironies in Eliot's quartets, but I wouldn't call it ironic. It, when we did the Divine Comedy, the Inferno was full, the, I, for those of you who are with me, the Inferno, the mode of the knowledge of the Inferno is irony. Sinners just don't see. We see things they don't. We see how blind they are. The, the mode of purgatorio is wonder. They're coming out of irony because they're beginning to admit their sins. So the ironies decrease. What takes their place is wonder. Well, you would define irony again for me. That's a word I... I yeah. It's there, but I... Irony is the word we use. Contradiction? Hmm? Is, it, is it an essential contradiction? Yeah, well, or some, something like that. Irony is a word we use to describe incongruities, discrepancies between one thing and another. And in literature, it, it usually makes us aware that characters in the book are not aware of some things that we've been made aware of. Or that some characters know something and others don't. So that incongruity, <laughs> why I live at the post office, petrified man, you can't read those and not feel an irony in every line. I mean, right? I mean, that's part of why we laugh. You think, God, how ridiculous these women are. What are they doing? Um, and, they, and they don't see at all. So the fundamental mode of reading those is irony, yeah? I mean, you can't read them without going, I mean, you want to take those women and or do something. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, what, what Debbie said is, is just an indication of how charitable she is. <laughs> because, because the character, one of the characters in the stories had a different way of dealing with that, as you know. Um, we'll get to that. Irony is, is the word we use to describe our experience of incongruities, discrepancies. Um, and, and, and generally in literature involving people who don't see something and others that do. Um, so this question, and here, what raised it for me last time is this. I think I, I brought this to you. When I look back at The Sound of the Fury when we finish it, I was appalled, absolutely appalled, from a catechetical, platonic, Socratic perspective. We're watching a family go to hell. And, and you know that, I mean, I, I said, I think, taking it from Shakespeare, the tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow speech of Macbeth, that we're, we're reading a, a story about a family who is, who is falling apart. And I, I suggested that that's an image of a modern America that's turned away from God. That that's not just limited to the South. That that's a condition all of us have inherited. We, we saw it in Moby Dick, we saw it in Go Down Moses, we saw it in Sound of Fury. 
Interestingly, in, in, of those three books, only one person, how to put this, revealed the problem, a character in a book. Is there anybody in Sound of the Fury, anybody in the Sound of the Fury who goes to the Compson family and says, I'm concerned? Anybody? There's not, I mean, Earl knew about it. The sheriff knew about it. It's quite clear, yeah, it's quite clear that there's, from what we learned from them, that other people, or it's likely that other people knew as well. Do we see anybody speaking to anything else while this family's falling apart? Here's, this is Ben, I mean, this is um, Pope Francis in this encyclical. He, he, he's, the, the call of the encyclical is to evangelize, to go out and speak to the world where most don't want to hear it. To take a joy, not to be self-righteous, not to be condemning, to take a joy in living the truth. How, Father's homily. How many of us have the courage to do that? We want to be liked. We don't want to make people angry. And he said, I don't like you anyway. When you, I mean, if you're, good, if you're going to hold these truths, they're not going to like you because you know that the, 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 the position of the world on these things is contrary. I said, you might as well give them a reason for not like no. So he, he said, have courage. Francis is saying, take a joy. Take a joy. Remember the disciples when they, were, when they were kicked out of the temple, when they were speaking for Christ after it all happened. They came out. They were kicked out of the temple. They stood around outside of the temple and they said to each other, they were glad glad that they had done what they they took a joy because they knew they were doing right. Here's Francis. He, he cautions us about not letting the, the failures of the church to sour us, to darken our view. Um, he has a number of other cautions that are not coming to mind right now, but that was a major one of them. To not let the relativism, the sins of the church, keep us from doing to not get bitter or cynical or disillusioned. He says this, this is section 88 of, of the encyclical. The Christian ideal will always be to sum, a summons to overcome suspicion, habitual mistrust, fear of losing our privacy. All the defensive attitudes which today world imposes on us. Many try to escape from others, take refuge in the comfort of their privacy, or in the small circle of close friends, renouncing the realism of the social aspect of the car. How comfortable we can get in the church. Francis has been saying this for years. Get out of the church. He says it's important to do prayers and rosaries, but there's a call to go out, which means to get out of our comfort with our friends, our community, those things that make us comfortable. This is, by the way, also the passage that John Paul, Father John, sorry, John Robert, who gave the retreat, this is the one that he, he signaled as the central defining, governing perspective for the whole of the encyclical. For just as some people want a purely spiritual Christ without flesh and without the cross, they also want their interpersonal relationships provided by sophisticated equipment, by screens, systems, which can be turned on and off. Meanwhile, the gospel tells us constantly to run the risk of a face-to-face -face encounter with others with their physical presence, which challenges us. We, you know this, we, every work with we, Ishmael, isolated, 
alone, in the chapel, isolados, um, in Go Down Moses. I mean, the hunt brings people together for a hunt, but outside of that, who confronts the disorders in these worlds? Ike did it, I mean, by what he did, and we saw the outcome. I mean, in my mind, it doesn't take away from me. He had the courage to do it, to renounce everything. To run the risk of facing others with their physical presence, with challenges, with their pain and their pleas, with the joy which infects us and our close and continuous interaction. True faith in the incarnate Son of God is inseparable from self-giving, from membership in the community, from service, from reconciliation with others. The Son of God, by becoming flesh, here's the still point, summoned us to the revolution of tenderness. That would have been a perfect paragraph he'd said, and joy, because that's what the call to is. Okay, so how many people in Sound of the Fury spoke to the Compson family? Who said anything? Quentin's alone. I mean, is there a young man more alone than he is? Is there anybody more alone than Caddy in her, in her own family? Quentin has nobody. Well, he's got Shreve, but clearly he's so isolated that he doesn't feel he can even go to him. Um, the, who, who, who speaks to these things? The only one who did it in Sound of the Fury is Faulkner, the poet. He's taken it out. The really interesting Sound of the Fury, Go Down Moses, Moby Dick. In, in only one of those books does a person actually speak the truth to others. Who is that? Hmm? Ishmael. Ishmael. Good for you. Bless your soul. And the serious question, if he's a Jonah figure, I mean, this, is, this to me is Melville's brilliance. If he's a Jonah figure, and he clearly is, we know that he didn't want to go. Ishmael didn't want to. He wanted to get away from everything. Um, he's swallowed by the whale and spit up, and he, he learns he's got to go speak to the Ninevites, and they, con they convert, they repent. There's that passage where the king says, I pronounce it. Everybody puts sackcloth on and ashes. The whole city repented. And Christ in one of the Gospels last week said, this city, Nineveh will rise up and condemn you. Um, because they're refusing God when he's actually there. So Nineveh repented. Now here's the serious question of Moby Dick. Ishmael came back to tell us, do we listen? Do we hear? Do we really see it? And what did he have to tell us? This, God, that book's just amazing. I think The great intuition of the center of Moby Dick is everybody's wounded. We're all hurt. And we don't, with our sense of justice, we, um, we resent it when somebody hurts us. And we hold those resentments. We saw that. Ahab will not let go of them. We saw that. He will not let, and we've been, every work that we, Iliad, the Odyssey, has been the dangers of living in the wounds of the past, of carrying them forward, not letting go. Ahab will not let go of them, and we saw the outcome, right? Ishmael reached that point. Remember at the beginning he says, the universal thump, been, you know, he says, make your peace with it. We are, you know, we all, we've all been wounded. Over the course of that book, he gradually gives it up. Remember the, his heart was splintered and it softened with the spermaceti scene. And, and we are watching Ishmael begin to engage with the beauty of creation, the analogies of being. So what is he bringing back to us? 
there's not a metaphysical evil at the center of things. That's a Manichaean view <coughs> that Ahab holds on to. I believe it's at the heart of the Protestant movement of the depravity of nature, this metaphysical evil. Ishmael turns his back on it and loves, and he finds wonder everywhere. What's he saying to us? Seems to me it's pretty clear. We can go the way of Ahab. We can hold on to our wounds and hold on to our resentments and feel self-righteous doing it. Look what he did to me. Or look what they did, look what he did to her or what she did to him. Or, or we can take a joy. You know, the way, I mean, you've all read it, you know, the, his humor as he explores all these aspects of reality and the delight that he takes and the sense of ironies that we have. That, that's what he brings back. Do we hear? Is that, what, is that the way we see the world? Um, so all the books, if we're dealing with a, a modern world that's turned away from God, are we listening? Is there something here for us to learn? Are we taking it back to the world? Those are big concerns for mine. So. Um, I should hold off these questions until later, but I'm going to do it now. Um, I'm going to come to the genre wheel because I want to get to these stories. Um, in the two Eudora Wealthy stories, she's giving us a pretty grim picture of women. Um, they are catty. They act like they're not doing anything, you know, that they're very innocent. But there's almost nothing they say that isn't mean-spirited. They're, they're, they're cutting, they put down, they're negative. Um, and, and the question is, why do we laugh at something so awful? Why do we laugh? <coughs> and before I take up this question, let me go back for a minute. <coughs> Um, if we go back to, the, to the, the classical view of man and woman in the Iliad, the Odyssey, Plato, the Aeneid, all the, all the things that we did earlier, we saw that the Iliad was a critique of the disorders in the honor code that is so important to men. And I'm assuming that everybody knows that that's a thing that most men take very seriously. If their honor's offended, <laughs> Um, they're not easy about it. Um, men tend to live in systems and structures more than women. I think women are a little bit more fluid, a little bit more open. Women, if, so if the Iliad's a critique of man in the honor code, the way that he, he uses women as objects, remember that the highest expression of honor is a beautiful woman, a prized possession. Women are treated as objects in that if we look at the Odyssey, Odysseus leaves that world to go home. One of the things he has to con um, confront in order to get home, to be re reunited with his wife, that is, i.e., to find the proper relationship he should have with his wife, given what we just experienced in the Iliad. He has to deal with all these feminine archetypes. Um, it's been a while since, but... So, Calypso, Circe, the Lestrigonese queen, the Sirens, Skill and Charybdis are all grotesque images of something feminine. Um, and he has, he has to learn to deal with them. 
because that's what he's going to encounter in the maidservants who betrayed him in Penelope, and even in Penelope herself. And remember, Penelope is the only woman in, all of, in almost all of classical literature, not, not complete, that's probably a little bit <coughs> else, who is completely faithful. I mean, she does everything she can to try to hold on to her, her hope that her husband will return. Um, if you go to the Siren episode, you find that the shore is littered with skulls of men who were, who were seduced by the beauty of women. The Lestrigonese queen was described as being larger than a mountain. She's an image of the disproportionate influence a woman can have in a home, the disturbance that can cause around her, because the beauty of a woman is so extraordinary. The Siren, the Lestrigone queen's skill in Charybdis, when Odysseus goes through that passage, he knows he's going to lose. He can't, he, the, remember we've talked about this, the black-white mentality that most Americans have. It's a, this, the, the lesser of two evils is a far more realistic thing because we live in a fallen world. No matter what choice we make in life, we're always going to lose something. If we go into it thinking, all this or all that, we're, it's not going to happen. So Odysseus has to make a choice of the lesser of two evils. He knows he's going to lose men. So it's either lose everybody or lose some. And that means what, whatever choice we make in life will always involve us in some suffering. If we expect to get free of it, we're going to go through the world acting like victims, blaming somebody else. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. The two feminine figures who have the greatest control over Odysseus are Calypso and Circe. Calypso remembers an image of spiritual beauty, transcendent beauty. Circe is an image of the beauty that a woman has um, that's purely sexual because she turns the men into swines and he's with her for a year. Odysseus is with Calypso for eight years. So just in terms of that alone, we know that Calypso and Circe exercise the greatest power over a man that he's got to learn to come to terms with if he's going to come up to be a lawful husband to his wife. Because it's the lust of a man that leads to his death. All the suitors are going to die. It's only Odysseus when he, when he learns to be lawful that he can have the relationship with his wife that he should. Anything else is going to be fatal. It's going to be deadly. The word calypso we get from calyptine, the Greek, to conceal, from which we get Apocalypse, Revelation, the book of Revelation, to uncover, to unreveal. Sir Calypso wants Odysseus for herself. When the gods come, she resents it. So we see that there's something possessive in women. She wants him for herself. She grudges it. And we know her name is Calypso Cave. That's the cognate of hell, of whole. That if Odysseus stays there <coughs> covered up, that, it, that is, he doesn't come out. Remember, the, the hero has to come out to, to perform his um, kleos, the honor. He, he has to deal with the hard things. That's the matter of honor. I mean, in the right sense, not in the wrong sense in the Iliad, because you know that Achilles straightens that out. He has to recover a proper sense of kleos of honor, the right kind of honor. And you know from Achilles that honor is, I think I'm already beloved in Zeus's 
honored in Zeus's ordinance, that if the man does it right himself with the gods, he will never have the kind of honor that he should. Because honor in, in the worldly terms in the Iliad is possessions, booty, wealth, riches, comfort, women. So in those two books, we get a critique of the way in which men and women use each other as objects, both. So that what the classical world showed us is how important it is to learn to see these inner things in us and how important it is to learn to work with our limits, to not try to do too much, to exceed our nature, to, to learn our nature. Um, the biblical perspective um, adds a dimension of this because Christ comes into the world, but we also see um, a very clear sense of ourselves from the fall. You know that the Bible begins with the creation and the fall immediately. Um, um, Eve is tempted by Satan and falls. That's such a difficult thing for me to talk about. I don't. Um, but we, we know that before the fall, she and Adam are um, in concert, in perfect harmony with each other. After the fall, one of the effects of the fall is that there's this um, terrible struggle between the sexes. We all know it. We all know it. Every work, every major work we've read, has, every work has, has, has touched in some way this fundamental struggle that men and women have with each other. Um, we know that before the fall that the two of them were, um, were in concord. Milton's treatment of Eve and Adam is a little bit troubling and, and it, I, I think in some sense it's almost the one most of us have grown up with and, and have even if we're not aware of it. Um, Satan appealed to her vanity and her wanting power. I mean he tricked her by doing that. That's the way he reads the Genesis. And um, one of the things she's left with after she chooses the apple is um, this um, envy that um, she wants equality and um, um, she, she contemplates actually even killing Adam. The thought that she would be alone with him or to be deprived of him because you know Adam's going to face a decision shortly. I mean, and you know what he does. Before he'd lose Eve, he's going to disobey God and he eats the apple. Eve was tricked. This is really crucial. Eve was tricked. Adam was not. She was tricked. Adam disobeyed. I mean, we can talk about the gravity. I don't want to get into that. But, but in Milton's treatment of her, there's an envious um, um, quality and even a, um, a, a thinking about murder or you know, being left alone and not wanting to be isolated if, if she can't trick him into eating the apple herself. That's Milton. But these are some of the images that we have in classical literature and Christian literature moving forward. Um, we know that woman is left with struggles um, after the fall. Mary answers them. And she answers them with this perfect obedience to God. Um, there's that stunning passage to me when, when they lose out, or Christ in, um, and then take off without him and they come running back and find him in the temple. Eve scolds him gently, but she scolds him. The passage is, it, and they went off and he was obedient to his mother. This, this is stunning. I mean, Eve, Mary's greatest quality is her obedience to God. 
some ways to Joseph, but Christ is obedient to her. He's God. And as a son, he learns obedience to his mother. So this question of obedience to me is not a small one. It's really central to everything she does. She trusts. She says yes when she has no clue what's going to be asked of her. That's one of the great qualities, the, the gentleness. So the gentleness that we get in her, she's the mother of God. She is the mother of God. She bore God, brought God into the world. And she's looked at in our faith as the way to Christ. She's the way to him. We go to Christ through her um, by imitating her, trying to be like her, to take on her qualities. Um, two of the qualities I want to just remind you of before we go forward because they bear directly on these. Remember, go back to the classical images that we have of women because we're going to look at these women in just a second. Um, one of them is the siren, the beauty that women have and the power that they have over man. Um, in one of the stories, it's clear that we're in a Baptist world. Think about the implications of that. In neither of the wealthy stories are there men around, and the men that are there are absolutely impotent. In Petrified Man, the women make a point of saying, my husband can't do anything with me. They make it a matter of pride that they are not going to listen to their husbands. And one of the irony, irony one of the ironies of Petrified Man, the la I mean, the last thing you can imagine Leota doing is going to her husband and listening to him. And yet she will go to a fortune teller and listen to him. Stunning. Um, the siren image, remember that. In a Baptist community, there's no pope. There's no male authority. And there's no men in, these, in either one of the communities. And sisters, you know, why I live at the post office, the father's not there. They've got the uncle, and he's putting on a dress and going outside to sleep in his hammock, have a beer. There are no men around. Remember what happened in the Odyssey when Odysseus, this is stunning. Remember what happened in the Odyssey when Odysseus was not home for 20 years. All those men grew up without a father figure. What happened to them? A hundred suitors tearing apart that home. There was no male authority guiding those men. Take a father out of the picture. Even whatever is failing. How much is the father present in the Copson family? Did he ever correct his wife? Did he ever correct his children? Too busy drinking, feeling sorry for himself. So we're looking at pretty contemporary problems here. I hope everybody's seen. The other image I want you to keep in mind is the Medusa. Remember, the defining point in the middle of the hell, the journey through hell, was going through the gates of Dis. And who is in the top of the gates of Dis? The Medusa. And it's at that point when they enter, the, that's central, that's a defining moment. When they go through the gates of Dis, if you remember, something happens that's unlike anything that happens in the whole of his journey. Virgil takes Dante and physically, physically turns him around. He says, do not look at her. Because what happens when you look at the Medusa? Turn in stone. Or, or in more relevant terms, to become petrified, sorry. What's the title of our second book? Petrified Man. Petrified Man. Where does that come from? Eudora Welty knew these myths. I mean, she plays on them all the time. Golden apples and petrified man. 
What happens when you look at the Medusi? Now wait, now why, why does, what does that mean to be petrified? When you look at something that hideous, what's the danger for man, for all of us? It's despair. To see that evil and look at it makes us despair. Take God out of the picture. What is there, what is there but despair? That's what despair is. You don't trust in God. If you're left to yourself and you have to deal with evil, what else is there? Because what can you, I'm, I hope everybody sees that. What can you do? If you're looking at something hideous and God's not around, you're rendered absolutely helpless. What do you do? You turn into stone. You despair. So petrified man is, I mean, while it seems really funny, I mean, I, hope, I, I was telling Suzanne when I was reading them this time, because I haven't read them in 20 years, I was reading them. I used to laugh at them because they really are funny. I had a hard time laughing at them. <laughs> I had a hard, much harder time laughing at them this time. Okay, let's take a look at the, let's take a look at the stories. Um, I just want to spend a couple of minutes on why I live at the post office. Um, but let me get this out at the beginning anyway, because it's, it's, it's the one thing that the two of them have in common. Remember this as we go through the short stories. This has been true of every story we've read. Every setting, every setting, every work we've read, every setting is a metaphor for the action. You all remember what action is, according to Aristotle. Here's the plot. The plot is the sequence of episodes, the events. The action is what this plot imitates. There's a spiritual motion, a movement that's invisible. The visible events, the sequence of events, is an imitation of this. We can only know this through this. Yeah? The action. The setting is a metaphor for the action. So what are the two settings? The post office and the beauty shop. Now what are the ironies? What are the ironies to the post office? Let's take that first. What are the ironies to the post office? <laughs> How much communication is really going on in that in sister's family? I mean, I hope everybody sees her. And not only that, when she when she gets really spiteful at the end and she starts taking all of her stuff and yeah. the radio and and she makes it clear that she's mistress of the post office, that she's not going to take any of the letters that her family wants to send send them. So I mean, it couldn't. Do you see what I'm saying? Artists are aware of that. The post office is not an accident. It's the, it's the appropriate setting, and it, what it does is reinforce the ironies. It sharpens what we see. What about the beauty shop? What are the ironies about that? It's, it's a metaphor for the action. Well, they're not beautiful women. <laughs> <laughs> they care more. They care more about how they seem than being good. Yes? Listen to this. At the expense of life, they are horrified, embarrassed at being pregnant. They have nothing good to say about pregnancies. 
And at one point, Leota says, talk, talk, is she talking about the freak show? Talk about pregnancy, there were these two freak twins in a bottle. Talk about pregnancy, there were these two freak twins. The attitude of these women towards life is a horror because they don't have control over it. I mean, let a woman open, I mean, what are they gonna do? The, the sense of control or this possessiveness is gone. They are horrified at life. There's an anti-humanist spirit that runs through almost everything they say. So the two settings, in a sense, give the stories away. It's a beauty shop. Women go there to seem to be beautiful. What we see underneath is their Medusa-like figures. I mean, they're, they are terrifying. Um, okay, I just, I want to only do one thing with, with Sister in, because um, um, I really want to concentrate on it. But let me read the end of Why, li or why I Live at the Post Office um, on page eight. Um, you know that she finally gets so, how to describe sister. She wants to have everything her own way. She is controlling everything. When her sister comes back, she doesn't want to give that up. So all the rivalries pick up again. This is the envy between sisters and everything begins to fall apart. There's, there's nothing that she does that doesn't initiate a quarrel, some difference. She, she, well, here, let me go to the central problem. It's told from her perspective, her point of view. What's wrong with that point of view? How do we describe it? How would you describe sister in the way she presents her life? Sarcastic, critical, self-centered. Self-centered, all of those, yeah. Is she reliable as a narrator? It's her point of view, no. Right, it is her point of view. Do you see how much everything she does is to present herself as a victim to make, yeah, to make us feel sorry for her? saying what she already said. Yes, yes. Is that clear? Because that's fundamental. That's, you, I hope you see that. That's not accidental on, on Welty's part. She, she presents her sister as presenting the story in every way to make people feel as if she's a victim. She's being mistreated. And so she does, it's like, um, she's like the counterpart of um, Jason. You know, she, she tells this story. She has a way, she justifies everything she does. Um, wants us to feel sorry for. I want to come back to the difference between Jason and Sister because it gets to this idea of grotesque comedy, but to, to me it's profound. But So she, she presents the story. She's an unreliable narrator. Um, and on page eight, she, she is getting ready to leave and, um, and notice how she, the same phrase that Jason used, cutting off your nose to spite your face, mm -hmm. I says, how often does she keep saying, I says, I says, I says? Because she's telling a story to us now. Remember, there was nobody there to listen to Jason. The question for us is, do we get drawn into this? Do we believe her? Do we sympathize with her? But if you all determine to have no more to do with the US mail, think of this. What will Stella Ronda do now? She wants to tell Mr. Whitaker could come after her. Wow, says Sister Stella Ronda. I knew she'd cry. She had a conniption fit right there. Sister cries out again. He left her. You mark my words, I says. That's Mr. Whitaker. I know Mr. Whitaker. After all, I knew him first. I said from the beginning and up and leave her. I foretold every single thing that happened. Where did he go? asked Mama. 
probably to the North Pole if he knows what's good for him. Mm -hmm. God, it just doesn't stop. Here, go to the last page. Um, and that's the last I've laid eyes on any of my family or my family laid eyes on me for five solid days and nights. Stella Ronda may be willing the most, telling the most horrible tales in the world about Mr. Whitaker, but I haven't heard them. As I tell everybody, I says, I says, this is, that's that colloquial that we saw with Jason. I draw my own conclusions, but oh, I like it here. It's ideal, as I've been saying. You see, I've got everything catered the way I like it. She wants to have her way in everything. Now she's got it. But here I am and here I'll stay. I want the world to know I'm happy. And Estella Rondo should come to me this minute on bended knees and attempt to explain the incidences of her life with Mr. Whitaker. I'd simply put my finger in both my ears and refuse to listen. How well does she hear other people? This is infernal comedy. Remember in Dante that um, People get exactly what they want, and they're trapped in their worlds. How, the, the, the cave, the Socratic cave. They have things exactly the way they want them. Um, we laugh at them, but it's a grim. They're getting exactly what they want. It's ideal. I mean, is she happy? I mean, no, she's yeah. happy like the people in hell. I mean, they have exactly what they want. That, you know, I wish Father would, I've got to talk with him sometime. I, you know, Father keeps saying eternally, it seems to me one of the interesting things about the figures in hell is they go into hell doing what they're doing. They just continue doing it all their life. I mean, eternally, because they're stuck. They're getting just what they want. It, the image to me of fire doesn't do it. It's, it's like they're, 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 remember, everybody in hell is tormenting themselves. They're choosing that act. They're fixed in it. So they don't even know that there's a before. They'll go on doing that forever. To me, that's terrifying. Just terrifying. You think everything do you're doing is good, in, and that. Do they know they're in hell? Well, they've got to have some sense of it, but I don't. They, you know, their whole habit is blaming others or faulting others, or. <coughs> yeah, so they're right. 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 Anyway, she's here. What here? And I just one last word on this before we. What day is it in the book? What day are they celebrating? What's the what irony about that? Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> They're all trapped. What's what you want? Independence. Independence Freedom. Day. Independence Day. Yeah. Does everybody see the irony there? She yeah. thinks she's free and independent. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of freedom and independence people in hell have. I mean, she's it's an infernal condition. So while we, I've got to come to this question, why do we laugh at things that are so, I, I don't want to answer this, but I want, before we leave, I want to take a minute. Why do we laugh at these? What, she know, Wealthy knows exactly what she's doing. These are grisly women. She knows it. She's a woman. She knows what she's doing. She's writing comedy. This is not Faulkner. She knows what she's doing. Why do we laugh? But think about that for a minute. Okay, let's do um, Petrified Man. Remember, we've always got to look at the action. And the action in Petrified Man takes two parts, part one and two. In the first part, we have Leota and Mrs. Fletcher in a beauty shop. Mrs. Fletcher is having her regular, I don't know, one month or two, I don't know about these things, but she's having her hairdo, her regular hairdo. 
And the two go on in a very catty way, and it's clear that these, there are these rivalries. If somebody says something that outdoes somebody the other, I mean, and it's all done in a catty way that it, innocently as if they're not saying anything, when there's almost nothing they say that isn't meant to hurt or wound, it's negative. And um, in the first part, she expresses her delight in having met Mrs. Pike. And she, she re recalls the experience at the freak show. Um, what, what's the irony of the freak show? They talk about these freaks in the show. It seems to me one of the grim ironies is they are the freaks. I mean, it's just they're, 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 they're so grotesque in, in what they do. But she, she's expressing her delight in Mrs. Um, Pike. And um, what happens at the freak show when they, when they see these um, pygmies and this petrified man on the bottom of page four, um, she's recalling the experience of these pygmies in the freak show in this particular one that's a petrified man, bottom of page four. I don't know, said Leota, she's just cute, that's all, but they got this man, this petrified man, that everything ever since he was nine years old, when it goes through, my God, how old do you think Billy is? The little boy that she spanks at the end. Is three? Three. three. Is he that old? Or I mean that young? Is it three? Yeah, he's, yeah. Okay, three. okay. Hold on to that for a minute, because we're going to come to him. Um, Ever since he was nine years old, when it goes through his digestion, see somehow, Mrs. Pike says, it goes to his joints and has been turning to stone. How awful, said Mrs. Fletcher. He's 42, too. That looks like a bad age. Who said so? That Mr. Mrs. Pike, I bet she's 42, said God. <laughs> it just doesn't stop. Nah, said Leota. Mrs. Pike's 33, born in January, an aquarium. He could move his head like this. Of course, his head and mine ain't a joint, so to speak, and I guess his stomach ain't either, not yet anyway. But see, his food, he eats it and it goes down, see, and then he digests it. Load, Leota rose on her toes for an instant. It goes to his joints, and before you can say Jack Robinson, it's stone, pure stone. He's turning to stone. How do you like to be married to a guy like that? It goes on. I want to stop here. Um, at the, at the beginning of the second, remember she's already described to Mrs. Fletcher that um, um, the couple that had rented the house, they had a falling out with. Right. And now they've had a falling out with the Pikes when she had nothing but good things to say about Mrs. Pike. So the first part begins where they're praising this woman and saying what a delightful woman she is. The beginning of the second part, she's gloomy, downcast, and it becomes clear to us that she's gloomy because she hates Mrs. Pike. Why does she hate him, her? Because she got all the money and she didn't. <laughs> and she resents it more because the, the, the freak show was right next door to her beauty shop. So there's the sense that she's entitled to it, that Mrs. Pike got all this stuff that she should. So she hates her. So add envy to the list of other things. That and it was her magazine. <laughs> huh? And it was her magazine. Oh, and by the way, so, I can't, we're not going to. Um, so she begins the second with, um, with uh, her anger. Now, a couple of things. One, the characters themselves are all women. 
Leota, Thelma, and we only see Thelma because she comes in and takes that drag on a cigarette only. I mean, it's all sort of, what's the word? Disgusting, isn't it? But it's loathsome. And Oh, and by the way, the opening word describing the beauty shop at the, on page one, the third paragraph, sitting back hidden in this den of curling hair. It's a den. All the women, Leota, Thelma, Mrs. Fletcher, Mrs. Pike, Mrs. Montjoy, and remember Mrs. Montjoy is the one who wants to get her hair done before she goes to have a child. God. Evangeline, which the word means bringer of good news. And you know that Mrs. Fletcher will go to her and listen to her before she'll ever listen to her husband. And the irony is Evangeline is the bringer of good news. She's a fortune teller. And it actually turns out that what she foretells happens because Mrs. Plank does come into this money. Um, the setting is a beauty shop. Um, look at the cultural influence. God, this is, this is what I think. One of the points that Pope Francis was making was to be on guard um, concerning the cultural influences in our lives because they can begin to seep into our character. This is the Plato Cave. That we begin to define our lives by the, by the values of the world around us instead of questioning them. What are the three books that the women read in the beauty shop? I just want to take a minute with this. Life is like this. Life is like that. It's one of them. Screen Secrets is the other. And the third is, this is the one they get the news about Mr. P or the, Mr. Petri. Mr. Petri. Startling G-Man Tales. <laughs> I've shown you all this picture, right? These are what the women, think about the, the tabloid stuff in a grocery store that women have to go through every day. It's just the tabloid stuff and, and romances. And, um, life is like that, screen secrets, starling G-man tales. Just for a second, I just would like your thought. What's the significance, do you think, of any of those books? What's life like that likely to be about? Trash. I mean, flesh that out. Trash, flesh. Uh, well, flesh. That's right. Fleshy trash. Fleshy trash. Things that are not inspiring. Innuendo about people. Maybe irony. And life. I mean, no, not probably bitter and negative, but also um, fatal. That life is like this. It's it's fixed. You know that. So there's going to be a deterministic sense to that. That that things are like this. Any sense of mystery? Any sense of openness or love or wonder or? Just no, no, no. Yeah, exactly. And screen secrets? Fantasy land. Huh? Fantasy land. Fantasy. <laughs> Think about what's going on in Hall. I don't even want to go there today. I don't, I, I don't, I didn't, I just say, don't say anything about that, but. And, and starling G-Man tales? I didn't know what they were. I went online, and when I saw it, I had to print this out. So you, I didn't know it. Ace G-Man stories. This was a whole rage for ages. Yeah. This is in the beauty shop. What does that say? They're now collectors' items. Huh? They're now collectors' Are they? <laughs> and I just heard. Yeah. Well. And I just heard that the homosexual community has taken these over because of the macho image of men. Look, all the men are macho, sort of prototype James Bond, heroic figures who can overcome everything. And the women are femme fatales. They're dark, 
carry these dark secrets that underneath these women are black widows and will kill men. And so these are the images in which these women. <coughs> so the literary influences of these people are, are telling. The, the women are anti-male. They make a point of saying they're not going to listen to their husbands. Their husbands can't do anything with them. Even though Leona goes to a fortune teller. They're anti-humanist. They have nothing good to say about pregnancy or birth. Um, and the ending of the story, just quickly. Turn to the end. Leona is furious. I hope everybody knows this. She's furious. She's lost this money. She resents the fact that Mrs. Pike got it. Um, and she's recalling what happened in this scene when they were looking at this G magazine. And Mrs. Pike recognized the man. She said, that's Mr. Petrie. And she recalls that that's the same man who had raped four women years before. Now hold on to this. This man, Mr. Petrie, raped four women. Um, bottom page nine. Took him in his breakfast, shrieked Mrs. Fletcher. Listen, don't tell me. I'd have felt something. All of the women are just caught with envy. Four women, I guess, whose women didn't have the faintest notion at the time they'd be worth 125 bucks a piece. This is the way, I mean, this is sad. It's so funny. Yeah. Does she see them as being raped? She sees them only in terms of their monetary worth. And this is a woman. That they'd be worth 125 bucks a piece someday to Mrs. Pike. We asked her how the old fellow was then, and she says he must have had one foot in the grave at least. Can you beat it? Not really petrified at all, of course. <laughs> She's probably winking. Um, I'd have felt something, she said proudly. Shoot, I did feel something, said Leo. I told Fred when I got home, I felt so funny. I said, Fred, that old petrified man sure did leave me with a funny feeling. He says, funny ha-ha or funny peculiar? And I says, funny peculiar. She pointed her comb into the air emphatically. By the way, because I, I, I don't want to miss this, we're going to end in a second here. Earlier we learned from um, Leota that she and Fred met in the backseat of a car. That's, you know, they, and, they're, and they're married. When the issue of marriage comes up, she makes it clear that it doesn't last so that we don't know how long she's going to be. With, I mean, it's a, it may be a passing thing. In, in terms of the story, it probably is. They, they do not look at men except as objects. I bet you did, said Mrs. Fletcher. They both heard a cracking noise. Leota screamed, Billy boy, what are you doing in my purse? I'm just eating these old stale. He seems older than three, but. It says he's three. Is, does it? Okay. Yeah, okay. You come here to me, screamed Leota, recklessly flinging down the comb, which scattered a whole ashtray full of bobby pins and knocked down a row of Coke bottle. This is the last straw. I caught him, I caught him, giggled Mrs. Fletcher. I'll hold him on my lap. You bad, bad boy. You, I guess I better learn how to spank little. This is her attitude before she gives birth. That if she's going to have a boy, this is what she's going to have to learn to do. This is what she takes into her life as a mother. Leota's 11 o'clock customer pushed open the swing door upon Leota, paddling him heartily with a brush while he gave angry but belittling screams which penetrated beyond Booth and filled the whole curious beauty parlor. From everywhere, from everywhere, ladies began to gather around to watch the paddling. Billy Boy kicked both Leota and Mrs. Fletcher as hard as he could. Mrs. Fletcher, with her, with her new fixed 
Smile. I want to come back to that. But what new fixed smile means what? There, my little man, gasped Leota, you won't be able to set foot down for a week if I knew what I was doing. Billy Boy stopped through the group of wild-haired ladies and went out the door but flung back the words, if you're so smart, why ain't you rich? Now, why does Leota spank Billy Boy? Should she have? Um, and how are we to understand what's happening at the end of this story in light of the story being called Petrified Man? Funny, you were shaking your head. What's <clears throat> should she spank him? Why is she spanking him? She's just so <laughs> Is this just? Is it just? No. No. She offered to keep him. Or watch? Well, I don't know that. I mean, she resents having to watch him, so I don't. But now, because early on she didn't. She was oh. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Takes her resentment out on the kid. Yeah. How does this relate to petrified man, do you suppose? The spanking? How does the spanking? Mm -hmm. This ending. How are we to understand what happens at the end in light of this den, everything that's going on here? And Mr. Petri. <laughs> Mr. Petri. Well, Billy Boy may turn out to be petrified himself. Yeah. And then he confronts her. If you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Yeah. That's a confrontation. Yeah. I mean, it raises questions. It, I mean, nobody wants to approve of rape, oh, but no. um, but it throws a whole other dimension on whatever was going on with Mr. Petri. I mean, we don't know, but. But it certainly raises questions here at the end, and, it, and it's a question about what will the next generation do? I mean, how will he be raised? And, um, but behind it all, remember, is this Medusa figure from classical literature and the, what we're watching with the way these women look at life and men and what they do to this kid at the end. Now, here's my question. It's a more fun. Why do we laugh at this? This, to me, is a really... I hope everybody sees. I mean, I th I'm assuming everybody laughed and found them funny. But it seems to me when we look at it, it's really grim. I mean, it's, it's as dark as everything going on in Dante's Divine Comedy. Why do we laugh? It's uncomfortable. The, the laugh, it's because we're uncomfortable we laugh at it? Mm -hmm. We often do that. We don't know what else to do. You laugh yeah, nervous laughter. Yeah. yeah, nervous laughter. Yeah. Not funny. Take a look at the back of my notes. How can anything as heinous and as horrible as the women in the two stories we were reading be treated comically? Just a couple of thoughts to leave you with. Um, one of the things that laughter does is that it, um, it takes away the power that a thing has over us to frighten us. Here, let me, let me approach quick, because right, I've got an 11 o'clock. Remember this. What were the two emotions that had to be purged in tragedy? Pity and fear. Pity and fear. I want everybody to think about this really seriously. Pity and fear. Remember, they had to be purged in order for reason to be restored. What's the danger? 
What's the difference between pity and love? Pity is an expression of our identification with the suffering of other people. We identify that suffering, we're one with it. The danger of pity is that we can become arrested in it. Love is not that way. Love looks out for the good of another, often at our own expense. With pity, we identify one and we can get stuck. Pity can become an enabling emotion. Instead of doing what we should, we feel sorry for somebody and don't. Comedy teaches us to laugh at something that has a power over us to make us frightened. To look at the Medusa is to be terrified and to fall into despair. Comedy helps us to look at something to take away that edge that pity has. What was the great temptation that Dante faced all the way up through the Inferno? Pity. He felt sorry for Francisca. He fainted. He fainted a couple of times. We talked about this. Remember, he talks about it. And in that one episode when Virgil pushes the sinner away, Dante says, blessed is your soul. That's a moment when he's beginning to learn to put pity away to begin to love as he should. Comedy teaches us to laugh at things that have a power of their frightening to look at. It makes it easier to look at awful things and puts them in their perspective. It, it helps us to step back so we're not overwhelmed by pity or just laugh things off. Comedy also keeps us on the surface. Comedy doesn't allow us to go in too deeply the way tragedy does. Tragedy, you know this, tragedy takes us into the depths of a suffering of a person. Remember, we, in tragedy we always come out of it because the danger is if we stay there, that's not tragedy at all, that's melodrama. Tra tragedy involves a catharsis, a turn. The hero always has a moment of recognition. So both tragedy and comedy take us to a good end. When people look at tragedy differently, they're not seeing tragedy for what it is. I've been saying that from the beginning. Comedy gives us an intellectual distance, puts us in our mind to look at things. It doesn't allow us into the heart where we share the wounds so much. Othello, Hamlet, Macbeth, Anthony and Cleopatra, Ahab. So tragedy takes us into the interior where we share wounds. Comedy roots us more in our intellects. We see the incongruity, the irony of things. So we learn to understand them. It distances us some from our pities. It helps to order our loves. You, you know that one of the, the greatest struggles is to learn to order our loves, to love as we should. With Christ, that always means a wound, a cross, a wound. But do we have the wisdom to understand it while we're sharing that wound. So I think it's really important to ask these questions here because we, we just read two stories about women that are really vicious. I mean, they're mean-spirited and catty and um, they're, they're, they're very much Medusa figures. And yet they're presented in this comic way. Um, we're, we're, we're able to laugh at something that's really horrifying and we have to ask why. Because there's a value in it, there's a good in it. There's a gift to us if we can learn to do that because we can distance ourselves. We can learn to see those things, as I've been saying, where they're in us, to change them, to pick them up, and to get help to do that. And this is some of it. I mean, Eudora Welty was a woman. 
and she's she's done an extraordinary thing here with her stories. I mean, she's um, is a comic writer. Okay, let's let's any questions? Yeah. So, um, Billy Boyne says, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? He must have picked it up from somewhere. If he's only three, if he's that young. There must have been talk yeah. like that in the house, don't you think? Talk like what? Define it. About spiteful Leota, or? Yeah. Yeah, or? yeah, about Leota's uh, change towards the pipes. They well, he's been hearing it too. I mean, he just was with because that's what they've been talking about oh, for the last true. 10 minutes in the okay. store. She's, res she's resenting the fact. She's angry that she didn't get it, and the boy sees that. It's hard. I don't see him as three, but maybe, maybe I know. I know. Maybe it's her way of saying that these things come to us younger than you think. So that yeah, it doesn't seem like he's three. Yeah, yeah. I think it's her way. It's got to be her way of conveying that there's this awful influence at work when a child is even that young. Otherwise, it can't make sense of it. Because okay, these are pretty grim. Let me just tell you, we're reading Hemingway. Hemingway's going to be dark. I, I won't be surprised if I don't see you guys next week. We are into some pretty dark stuff here. Um, so which are the ones we're going to, because we haven't done lots more of the ladies, right? I'm, I'm going to take two minutes with, because we just didn't have time today. I'll take just two minutes with Once More to the Lake next week, but next week we'll focus on the three Hemingway stories. Two of them are very, very short. One of them, Francis McComber's story, is long. And they're dark. They're, they're dark. Yeah. The clean well lighted place. Yeah. And the other two are named. Um Yes. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And you will be not here. No, nope. I'll be here Monday. You'll make it up on Monday and work on Friday. Yeah. Oh, we'll find out if there are more people on Monday. I know the different groups for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we keep losing. Kathy and Mike have been away for a while, so they're not here. I think the pretzel wasn't so hot. Mm -hmm. so, um, I'm not sure, but here we go. I'll get a trash. Uh-oh. All right. You guys have a good week. Thank you. Thank you. See you tomorrow in church. Trash. Yes, yes, so we'll be there. Oh, yeah, good for you, Bill. You said there were three halfways? Yes. Oh, thanks, Pam. God. So we got. His, that's else? his. That's his. his. And the next one is. That's that, his. Oh, that is his. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then right. the Francis McCarthy. I think that's it. This one. Yeah. This is the third one. Yeah. Short, happy one. So his. Oh. Like, oh. Okay. Okay. His like white elephants. These three.
right there. Right there. You got it? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Feels like a white elephant. Uh, clean, well lighted place, and short, happy life. Those are the okay. All right. What's where the lake? The a good man is hard to find. That's sorry. I I mentioned that. Maybe I didn't do it here. This is O'Connor. I know. I corrected. I thought I, thought I did. I got That's an O'Connor story. Is this yours, huh? Uh, yes, please. Thank you. Well, it sounded. The title Wait, so sounds almost like a wealthy story. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, it's, say the question again, Mark. Feels like wine. Yes. Right. Those three. What do you think this? Years, this was, I mean, this is 35, 40, early. Because yeah, I, I remember 40s. seeing this as a kid when I was growing up. There's something yeah. very familiar about this. It seems to me there was a lot. I don't remember the magazine, but this kind of, you know, I, yeah, yeah. This, the, the, I don't know what you call that genre, detective, the Sam Spade. Oh, yeah, yeah, the detective stories. Yeah, there yeah. was a whole. Yes. Collection of detective, American detective, like Sam Spade, that had covers. I used to see things like this on calendars. Oh yeah, yeah. That was it was the, I don't know what to call it, fatty chart or you know, it was. To me, that's the Dells. Yeah, I think that's I didn't even know an Ace of Gina, and then I read this up and I thought I've got to print these off. They're really good. Once you see them, you go, oh yes, that's. Huh? They are different. Yeah. Yeah. Like oh. last Oops. 